0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to hang out tonight. We're moving, in. We're moving through the book of Romans. The second half is a little bit faster than the first half because it's not as much theology and depth. Paul has gotten to practical Christian living. And so let me just remind you what chapter 12. Chapter 12 sets up the rest of the book of Romans. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to offer your body as a living sacrifice and worship to the Lord. Then he goes on and says, use your spiritual gifts, your gifts for service to the Lord. And last week, he talked about how we practically live out our Christianity, especially in how we treat one another. There's a lot of practical application last week about loving one another and not taking revenge and being patient and tribulation, and being hospitable, and all those types of things. And so, now we come to chapter 13, and there's two different parts to chapter 13. But the first part of chapter 13 is how do we live out our Christianity as citizens under the authority of the government, okay? And so, let me just give you some background before we start. When Paul's writing this, probably Emperor Nero is the... Emperor of the Roman Empire. Do you guys know anything about who Nero was? Um, he wasn't a nice guy. He actually um, lit up Christians on stakes. He'd he put them up on poles and light them on fire to to light up his gardens. He was a very evil, evil emperor. So this is during the time of persecution as well as just. It's not a democracy like we have today. So it's interesting what Paul says here, um, point blank, when it comes to the government. And we as Americans can read this and and, and maybe not really interact with it because we don't really think much about it, but the original audience, it would have been pretty radical to them. So let's read um, Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject or... "...submit themselves to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good." But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Key word in this passage of Scripture is the word be subject or submit. It shows up in verse 1, and then it shows up down in verse 5 twice. And so it's interesting that Paul doesn't say obey the government, but he says to submit to the government. The word submit means to line up in rank underneath an authority structure. Now, why are we to submit to the governing authorities? What does Paul say here? They have been instituted by God. They've been set up by God. The government has its authority, not because it's its own entity, but because God has given it that authority. So think about Pilate, who Jesus was brought before to be on trial, and Pilate's questioning Jesus. And what what does Jesus say in John 19, 10 through 11? Pilate said to him, that's Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you, Pilate says. You know who you're talking to? You're talking to the governor, or not the governor, but you're talking to the the leader here. And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So what's Jesus saying to Pilate? You really have no authority except for the authority that God has given you to be the leader. So God has instituted all governments. Now here's the hard thing about this passage of Scripture. Does it say be subject to the governing authorities as long as it's a democracy? As long as you have a Republican president? As long as you have a good Supreme Court justice? As long as Congress knows what they're doing? Submit only... Only if it's um, expedient for you to submit, is there any qualifications on here on how to submit? It just says submit to the governing authorities. So God has instituted all governments. That may be a hard pill to swallow, but he's instituted that. Proverbs 8:15 through16 says, "By me, this is God. By me king's reign, And rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Okay, so God has, so whether you like America or not, hopefully you do, um, God has instituted our government sovereignly. And notice what he says there. Don't, in verse 2, don't resist what God has appointed. Because if you break the laws and resist, you will incur punishment. So if you try to go against the authority structure, so if you break the laws of the land, you should expect to pay the price for that. You're going to get um, in trouble. He says there in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. So if you, if you live as a good citizen in America and obey the rules, that's a good thing because you're obeying the authority structure that God has set up. So we are to obey the laws of the land without exception except except what So some of you are thinking now wait a minute does that mean that this is an absolute statement that I am to obey every single law that the government gives me So here's a question when is it ever appropriate to resist a government through civil disobedience or through not obeying a law? Is there ever a time when you have permission to break a law? And the answer is there is. And let me give you an example of that. So back in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were preaching about Jesus. And the rulers and authorities came to them and told them to stop. So in Acts 4 18 through 20, the leaders called them, that's Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the disciples are brought up and said, You can't talk about Jesus. You can't preach about Jesus. You've got to keep your faith to yourself. Okay? The authorities, the legal authorities came and said that to them. Verse nineteen: Peter and John answered them, "Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard." What did they basically say? Nah, you can try to shut us up, but we're going to keep preaching. You cannot tell us to do something that would go in violation of the Scripture. Okay. Now, they continue preaching, they break the law, because the law, the legal authority said, don't preach about Jesus, and they said, we've got a higher law. The higher law is Jesus and his gospel, and we must preach it. Whether it means we're thrown in jail, whether it means we're beaten, we're going to obey God, and so that's what happens. So in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29, when they had brought them They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here's the important answer to the question. We must obey God rather than man. So, here's a principle. We should obey the laws of the land insofar as they don't go against your Christian beliefs. Then you have a higher authority to answer to. Now, does that mean that it's going to go easy for you? Think about people in countries right now where it's illegal to share the gospel. What's happening to some of those people? They're being thrown in jail. They're, they're suffering the penalty. So you, no, nobody can ever stop you from sharing the gospel. You must obey God. But the governing authorities may punish you for obeying God. Now, in America, where there's not a lot of persecution yet, it's fairly easy for us to live pretty Good citizens in our in our country obeying the laws of the land and not having to worry about those coming in conflict. But yeah, Jerry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. That that would be the same as that uh, baker in Denver. That right, the baker uh, in Denver. Yeah. Try to mm-hmm. tell that couple that he would not make a cake. Yeah, them. there's there's examples of cake, cake bakers and candlestick makers and florists and yeah. butchers and no, the florist in. Um, I think her name's Stutzman, Baronelle Stutzman, I think. She's in Washington State. Um, Right now in Canada, it's illegal to preach certain passages of the Scripture that talk against homosexuality because it's considered hate speech. Um, And so there could come a day, especially if this bill that a lot of people want passed, um, I I don't even remember the name of it now. Equality Act, yeah, the Equality Act. If the Equality Act gets passed, which it very could easily, it may change a lot of what quote-unquote pastors can say from the pulpit and not get in trouble. Now, it has to be policed where people have to kind of go turn you in or whatever, but there may come a day where me standing up and saying certain things from the pulpit or even in this room could be punishable with fine all the way up to imprisonment. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but... So I've got to make a choice to say, am I going to obey what God says or am I going to be in fear of the government? And I have to stand before God and say, I'm going to obey what you say regardless of how the government treats me, okay? Now, there's a balance there because you don't want to be a jerk and go out there and try to break the laws when you don't need to do that, okay? But the main teaching here in this passage of Scripture is that God has ordained not only governments but the actual leaders of those governments and we should be good citizens and obey the laws. So let me ask you a question. It's an easy question. I'll ask you the easy question then I'll ask you the hard question. Does God know who the next president of the United States will be? Does God know that? Okay, That's easy. Does God ordain who the next president of the United States is going to be? Yes. Then why vote if it's all figured out? <laughs> I'm not saying don't vote. <laughs> I'm saying we, there's a lot of things in the Bible that human responsibility and God's sovereignty work side by side. We've talked about this a lot. It's called compatibilism. You make a choice to vote, you vote your conscience, but at the end of the day, the person that gets into office is the one that God has ordained to be in the office. And you say, well, how, how in the world do you do you know that, Pastor Sean? Well, I've got some verses here that actually teach that. So Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What is that saying about God? What does God do to the king? God directs the king's heart wherever he wants it to go. Okay, So you have two examples in the Old Testament of kings, pagan kings, not Israelite kings, pagan kings who God appointed or set up in His sovereignty to be at that time in that place for that purpose. So, so first is King Cyrus. He's the Persian king. Isaiah forty. This is actually in reverse order historically, but um, King Cyrus. Isaiah forty four twenty eight. Who says of Cyrus, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, he, she, shall, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Okay, do you guys remember what happened? I'm kind of going in reverse order here with the kings, but, because we'll talk about Nebuchadnezzar here in a moment, and I probably should have put these in, in a different order. But do you remember when the, the Israelites were carted off into um, Babylonian captivity for 70 years, but then God promised that he would bring them back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall? By that time, Cyrus was the king of Persia, and he had ultimate authority over who could do whatever they wanted to do. And so God sovereignly set up Cyrus to be the king to allow the Jews to go back. And so God moved in Cyrus, appointed Cyrus, set up Cyrus to be that king. Um, Isaiah one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. He says Cyrus is his anointed servant that he set up. Also King Nebuchadnezzar, God appointed him a pagan king. Jeremiah 25.9, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. King Nebuchadnezzar was the Lord's servant. Now, here's an explicit passage of Scripture that teaches this. This is Daniel 2.21, talking about God. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom and knowledge to those who have understanding. So who sets up kings and removes kings? God. Okay, God is in control of all that. Now, how he does that and through what human instrumentality that happens and how it happens secondary. So I don't think God does this directly. Okay, There's direct causes and there's secondary causes. Okay, so let's just talk about direct causation and secondary causation. Okay, so can we just make an argument that God is the cause of everything? Some of you are like, I don't buy that. Is God the direct cause of everything? No. Are there secondary causes that make things happen? Yes. So the question is does everything that happens, does, is everything that happens part of God's will? Yes. Okay. Does God directly make everything happen? No. Sometimes he does. Oftentimes he uses secondary causes. What would be a secondary cause? If God knows and ordains who the next president of the United States is, does God like, just bypass the whole voting system and say, I'm going to install my, my next president and announces it from heaven and then just that person becomes president? Does God directly intervene? No. Secondary causes. What's the secondary causes? You and I Voting. Okay? but is the outcome what God wanted through our free choices to vote? Okay, Kind of hard to wrap our minds around, okay? Ultimately, God is the one who sets up governments and leaders. And God has, done, God has set up governments for our protection. I mean, in an ideal society, what is the government there for? How is the government helpful to you? As much as we complain about the government, why, what, what does it help you with? if somebody runs a stoplight and runs into your car and kills your child, what does the government do? There's a law they broke. You've got a court system. Okay? So there are some things that the government does to help society stay not chaotic. And the point is is that God has instituted governments and government leaders for our protections. And so we need to have a... um, we shouldn't have a sense of entitlement that somehow we're above the law, okay? Because there's two reasons. What Paul says here, there's two, there's two things that we need to understand when it comes to the government. Um, verse five, therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, okay, so number one, if you break the law, there is punishment. So, number one, you want to understand God's authority structure with governments because if you break the law, there's punishment. But then notice at the end of verse five, but also for the sake of conscience. It's probably a more important reason here. So, let me ask you guys a question What is the conscience? What's the conscience? Why should you obey the law as according to conscience? Right, yeah, basically what we're saying here, what Paul's saying is we should obey the law because it's the right thing to do, because you're obeying God ultimately who has instituted those governing authorities, okay? Now, this is verse 7 you may not like, especially this time of year. Anybody had their taxes done yet? <laughs> Getting their taxes done in a few weeks, um, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So we need to pay taxes in revenue. And Jesus taught this. Okay? In Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, they're talking to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of God. So here's their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, question. Okay, what's going on in Jesus' day in Palestine, in that area? The the Roman Empire is the one that's in charge. And some of the Jews thought, well, we really shouldn't have to pay taxes to Rome or pay taxes to Caesar because technically, you know, they're a foreign nation that's come and, and kind of overtaken us and, and, and we really just don't need to do that. So the question they posed to Jesus is, okay, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? We're trying to trap Jesus. Okay, so what's Jesus' answer? Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, which is a coin, okay, and look at it. And they brought one and they said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Okay, so just like our coins that have pictures of presidents on the front, front back then they had a picture of Caesar. So Jesus, like, bring me a quarter. And that. Okay, whose picture's on it? Caesar. George Washington. Okay. Not George Washington Caesar, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Jesus said to them, verse 17, this is the important part, render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So what are the things that we have to give to Caesar that are Caesar's? What's, what's Jesus mean there? If, you ha- if, if the government's requiring you to pay taxes, you pay taxes. I'm not going to get an argument here about the morality of high taxes because I think the Bible has a lot to say about that um, because there could come a point where, oh, I've got I to avoid being political here tonight. Um, let's just say reasonable taxes we should pay. Um, but again, the thing about these passages upon the government is that because the Scripture is timeless, and it applies to all places at all times and all governments, there's no real loopholes here about what we're supposed to do and not do. We're supposed to subject ourselves to the government, regardless of what kind of government it is, unless it goes against your conscience and your, your Christian beliefs. You're supposed to pay taxes. Now, there's no percentage there. Pay taxes to Caesar only if it's, like, if it's above 50% and you can't pay taxes. Have an account and find a loophole. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing there. It's just we're supposed to render to Caesar what, what we're to render to Caesar. Now, one of the most important things we can do, and this is where I think I've been very guilty, especially when the government is um, like you don't like the leaders or you don't like your government. How often do you complain about your leaders and not pray for them? So let me just ask you a question. I'm gonna ask. I'll, I'll give you an elephant in the room. Okay, I'm sure a lot of you have prayed for President Trump because he's our president. And I'll be guilty. of This. How many of you have prayed for Bernie Sanders and his salvation? I can't say I have, but he could be our next president. Who knows? <laughs> Heaven help us if that's true. But um, that could. I mean, listen to First Timothy two one through two. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified life in every way. So we're supposed to pray for our leaders. And that goes from, like, do you pray for the mayor? Do you pray for the county commissioners? Do you pray for your local congresspeople? Do you pray for a governor of our state. That's a hard one because we have a whack, well, I gotta guess, can't be, put. do you pray for your leaders? Because Paul tells us here to do it. He's like, I urge you to do this, to pray for kings and all those in high positions. Um, just a side note. This is way off the subject, but sort of on the subject. It just popped into my head because we were talking about this last night in another Bible study I was in. Somebody asked a question about demons and Satan and spiritual warfare. Who do you think Satan is going to attack or influence or try to get on his team? Our leaders. leaders at the highest level. Okay, so if the leaders at the highest level are the target of Satan, have a lot of influence, have a lot of sway, are being manipulated or influenced by a lot of people, do you not think that they need prayer? Big time. Um, so it's kind of convicting to me because I don't think I pray for our leaders as much as I should. Um, I like to complain a lot, but I don't pray. Yeah. So pray for your leaders because God has instituted those leaders obey the governing authorities, render under Caesar what Caesar's, and do it all because of conscience, because it's the right thing to do. There's one loophole, there's one exception, if the government requires you to do something that goes against the Scripture and to violate that. Okay? Now, the Bible teaches this in other places. Um, turn with me to 1 Peter 2, 13-17, through because Peter teaches almost the exact same thing. It's interesting how First Peter and the second half of Romans are pretty similar in a lot of ways. And the reason I'm showing you this is to show you that it's not just in one place in the Bible, but Scripture interprets Scripture. So let me let me show you a second or First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen, because Peter's going to say about the same thing, just in a little different way. So is everybody there? 1 Peter 2:13 through 17 All right. Be subject, there's that word again, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So Paul gives us three ways, or Peter actually here, not Paul. Peter gives us three ways to obey the government. First of all, he flat out says it's God's will that we should do good. Notice what he says there. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to emperors or supreme or to governors. And then verse 15 for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Our doing good in culture, in society, should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Regardless of how hostile our government becomes, we should be known as Christians for doing good. Okay. Will there be people in our culture who are foolish and don't understand Christianity? And will laugh, and will mock, and will make fun, and will malign? Okay. What Peter's saying here is don't give them a reason to make more fun of you. By doing dumb stuff. He's saying, listen, let these don't give these people that are already against Christianity more ammunition to, to aim at you for doing dumb stuff. Instead, be known for doing good. Now, many times Christians are more notorious for what we're against than what we're for. Okay? Now I need to qualify that statement. Because what I'm not saying is that we don't address sin, that we don't vote our conscience on vital issues that affect morality, but do we as Christians seek the general welfare of our towns, of our cities? Jeremiah 29.7 says this. Seek the welfare of... Of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Okay, what's the welfare of the city? What are we supposed to be praying for? Are you praying? Some of you are from different communities, so are you guys like, is it Stoneham or New Ramer or where do you guys, what do you guys call just out there? Out there, out there okay. Okay, so. And you're, you live in Kansas, so you're not, I mean, so, okay, and you guys live kind of in Sterling, Fort Moore, okay. The point is do you want where you live to be a better place? Like, do you want crime to be lower? Do you want the, the quality of life to be better? Do you pray for the welfare of the city? Do you pray for Sterling? Do you pray for leaders of Sterling? Do you pray for... So So one of the things we do on Sunday night at our prayer meeting is we try at least every Sunday, and some of you guys come to prayer meeting, we try at least almost every Sunday to pray for something in our city, whether it's the hospital or first responders or cooperating ministries or um, prison workers or um, when they were doing the highway or when they were doing the... Um, construction worker. We were praying for the construction workers. Just praying for we pray for social services, pray for foster care, pray against drugs. Um, do you want Sterling and Northeastern Colorado and where you live to be a better place because you're praying for the city? Do you want Do you want it to be a, just a better place to live? Are you praying for that? Okay. So are we doing good just on behalf of our cities, our towns? Now, Paul also says this in Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive. To who? To rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay, be submissive to the ruling authorities. We've seen that, but be ready for every good work. In other words, be a good citizen of your town. Don't give cause for non-Christians to say, those crazy Christians are making where we live a worse place because of their foolishness. Silence their foolishness by doing good. And so pray for the welfare of your, of your city. The second thing Peter says is don't, don't use your freedom. I mean, don't, don't abuse your freedom. To engage in sin he says this in verse 16 live as people who are free but don't don't use your freedom as a cover-up of, of evil um, think about what is America known for the land of the free and I said this last week what's what's our nation's biggest idol self-expression I want to be who I am I can choose to be a man. I can choose to be a woman. I can identify however I want to identify. I can be whoever I want to be. You have no right to tell me what to do. I can do what I dang well please because I have the freedom to do it. And what does Paul say? Or Peter here say? Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Just because you live in a free country, don't be stupid and do dumb stuff. Respect that freedom that you have because it may be taken away. Question for you Could God take away our American way of life just like that? You guys ever seen the movie Red Dawn? The old one and the new one? Okay, the old one is probably better than the new one because it had Charlie Sheen and, or know. it had, uh, yeah, Charlie Sheen and Patrick Swayze and C. Thomas Howe and took place in Colorado. But it's a story about how the Russians kind of invaded one day. And <laughs> these kids, like, the kids are in school, and then, like, these paratroopers come in, and, and the, the Russians take over their America. And they're sent to go live up in the mountains of Colorado. And def- But my point is, do we, we should not take for granted the freedom we have right now in America, because it could be taken away in a heartbeat. I think things are going to get worse than better. That's just my opinion. Um, Just need to be prepared for that. And then last last Peter says here, live as servants of God, literally live as slaves of God. It's the Greek word doulos, which means a bond servant. Um, Ultimately, um, your allegiance is to Jesus. You are first a citizen of heaven before you're the citizen of your own country. So your ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. And then in verse 17, uh, Peter gives uh, four rapid-fire commands to motivate us to shine as lights in the world. He says, honor everyone, okay, honor everyone. Why? Because all humans are created in the image of God. They deserve dignity, give people honor, love the brotherhood, love others. We talked about that last week. Jesus said in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I will give you that you are to love one another. Just as I loved you, you loved one another. By this, all people will know my disciples if you have a fish on the back of your car. Is that what he says right there? <laughs> By all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay? Fear God, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. And then the interesting thing here is he says, honor the emperor. Again, as Peter's writing, it's Nero too. Honor the emperor. Now, this is hard, so I want to just kind of maybe camp out here just briefly. We need to make a distinction between honoring the office and honoring the person. Do you have to particularly like the person and the policies of a leader or do you have to respect their office and what they, that God has instituted them in that office? You may not agree with the politics or like the personality or anything of, of, of whoever's in office. But you need to realize that God is the one that's put that person there. Now, look back at verse 13. The primary key to this entire passage is back in verse 13 where Peter says, We're to do this for the Lord's sake. We're to do this for the Lord's sake because of our commitment to the Lord. Why do we submit to the governing authorities? We do it because of our commitment to the Lord. So here's here's a conclusion of Romans 13 and of 1 Peter, this whole teaching on how we relate to the government. So as Christians, we should thank God for our government. I think we need to thank God that we live in in the nation that we do. We have a privilege that not... We have a privilege that 99% of the rest of the world doesn't have. And we should thank God for that. We also need to recognize God's sovereignty over our government and our leaders, that God sovereignly puts those in place. He's ordained this. We need to pray regularly for our leaders. We need to follow the laws of our government so far as they don't violate God's word And then ultimately, we should refuse to give to the government absolute allegiance as this only belongs to Jesus. Should you give anybody absolute allegiance besides Jesus? Do you give absolute allegiance to your employer? Because what if your employer tells you to do something that's wrong? The only person you give absolute allegiance to is, is to the Lord. All right, so let's go back to Romans. And that's Romans 13, 1 through 7, deals with how we relate to the government. So, do you guys have any questions on that before we move on to a totally different subject in the middle of chapter 13? Questions on government? Come on now. Any questions? Risa, you look like you're wanting to ask something. Well, you know, the majority of them, okay, I don't know about the majority, but you were saying how, like, if they are believing in something that's not of God. Who, mm-hmm. so the leader? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, all these. Well, okay, let's make this, uh, okay. Hmm. Do you guys want to know Pastor Sean's opinion? Do you want to know my political opinion tonight? Sure, why not? Okay, so there, since President Trump has been elected, there's been a lot of people, he's very polarizing, a lot of people don't like him. And especially among evangelical Christians, a lot of people don't like Trump. Christians don't like Trump because of his immorality, his kind of bombastic personality, his, just the way he carries himself. And so a lot of friends of mine are just, they're they're never Trumpers because they can't bring themselves to support a president who's done the things he's done. Um, And so they would never vote for Trump. Um, On the other hand, you have a political party that will rename that will remain nameless but the top candidates are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. Now you have a political party that absolutely stands for things that are against God's word. Like abortion, like taking away religious freedom, a lot of things. So in the world that we're in, as a Christian, how do you, what do you do? Okay. So here's my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. Do you want, a, at this time in history, a president who is a little off personality-wise, but at least stands for things that we want, or do you want to give power to a party that's going to totally take away a lot of freedoms we have as Christians and promote an immoral agenda? You look at those two things, which is the worst of the two evils? To me, the other party per se is the worst of two evils. Um, and so, what I would say is every human person that's in office is going to have flaws, they're going to have character problems. And ultimately, you kind of have to look at their policies and say, what is the person doing versus what is the person tweeting, okay? And I think in our polarized age, it's hard to to, to make that distinction. And so I've probably spoken more politically tonight than I probably ever have from the pulpit, and it's a small group, and it's on Facebook for everybody to see now. So um, I didn't tell you how to vote, but I would say this when you have one particular party and every single candidate in that party so far to the left, to me it, it, it's, it's a pretty clear choice of how you would do that. But I also know that every person has to vote their conscience. I can't bind your conscience on how you vote. I will never tell you who to vote for, what party to vote for, how to vote. And when I was growing up, you never told anybody who you voted for. You kept that to yourself. And now everybody just everything's out on Facebook. I mean, my parents never told me who they voted for. I don't think they that was something they just kept to themselves. It was my personal de- decision. Um, so I'm not going to tell you. That's enough of that. <laughs> I don't digging myself in a deeper hole. What, what else? What other questions do you guys have? Can I answer your question, Reese, or not? Alright, you guys may move on to a different subject? Okay. All right. So let's move on to the second half of Romans chapter 13, which totally different, not totally different, but a different topic going back to love and then talking about how you live a righteous life in light of the second coming. So let's read Romans chapter 13, 8 through 14. O to no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's just, let's just stop right there, okay? Paul goes back to the subject of loving one another. And here's his main point here, talking about an obligation. If you, do owe a, you owe a debt. What's the debt? Love. It's an obligation that has no limits, and it can never be paid off. You're always going to be in debt to love. So you can't ever get to the point where you say, okay, I have paid up, I paid, paid up. I don't owe any more love. I've exhausted my love for you. It should have no limits. And so, as believers in Christ, Paul says here, our obligation is to continually love one another with a selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. That's the word agape. And we see this all over the Bible. So, Leviticus 19.18 you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Matthew five forty four through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay, love your enemies. There. Not just love your neighbor, but love your enemies. Okay. The two greatest commandments, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him the question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, here's the the great one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So what's the great commandment? Loving God with the totality of who we are. The second, this is the first and great commandment, the second's like it. So this is the second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And in Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, He talks about the law here and the commandments. Verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And all the other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. Let's talk about the Ten Commandments for a moment. Based upon what we've seen in the book of Romans so far, are you saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Can you do enough good in order to get into a right relationship with God? No, you can't. Okay? But once you're saved and the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, does the Holy Spirit give you the grace to be able to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. What's the second half of the Ten Commandments? The second table of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law as we call it, are all of the relationships related to -to human-to-human interaction. So commandments 1 through 4 are your personal relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10 are how you interact with others. Obeying parents, adultery, murder, bearing false witness, um, stealing, coveting. And so ultimately, all of those commandments that are in the second half of the Ten Commandments all are related to loving one another. So let me ask you a question. Is it loving to murder Is it loving to commit adultery? No. Is it loving to steal? No. Is it loving to lie? Is it it loving to covet? No. So the ultimate way you love your neighbor as yourself is in practical ways is you obey the second half of the Ten Commandments. And so ultimately Paul says there's an obligation that you're going to have your entire life that you're going to have to keep over and over and over again. There's no limit to it. You can't pay it pay enough. You can never pay it off. How many of you guys like the feeling of paying off a credit card? That you've been like, you've been in debt for a long time. Like, oh, the last payment. You know, like I was so happy back in August. Or no, September. Because on my previous Honda, I had one payment left and that car was paid off. And then we had the hail storm out here where my car got destroyed and it got totaled. I had one car payment left on that thing. So they totaled out my car and so I bought a relatively new car, a new newer used car, but now I have a car payment again. And I was like, man, I had one payment away from paying that thing off. I was going to drive it till it died. Well, God had different plans. But... It's really nice when you pay something off and you're like, okay, I'm out of debt on that. Paul says you're never going to pay off the debt to love. It's something that you're always going to be paying. It's the obligation you have as a Christian to love one another all the time. Because let me ask you a question. What if Jesus had the attitude toward us that he was not going to love us or he had a threshold of love or it kind of ran out? Okay, okay. My love for you's run out. You're done. You're toast. None of us would have salvation. None of us would have a security. So we are to continually love one another without end. Okay. Now, in verses eleven through fourteen, Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ and how we're to live in light of the second coming of Christ. So in verse 11, Paul focuses on holy living in light of the second coming of Christ. So let's read verses 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The day of the Lord's coming, Paul says. It's closer now than it was yesterday. Now, do we know when Jesus is coming back? No, but it's sooner than it was yesterday. And so in light of him coming, Paul says, you are to walk in the light. It's time to be sober. It's time to wake up. It's time to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Not living in darkness, but living in the light. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 4 through 6 uh, says the same thing. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day, what day? The day of the Lord, the second coming to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light children of the day, we're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep, so as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. There's this whole idea of light and darkness, light and darkness. Okay. What happens during darkness? Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you guys know what the witching hour is? There's a difference in like, like when do you guys think the witching hour is? I think it's like between one and three that usually what the traditional witching hour is okay what happens in the witching hour between one and when do most crimes take place between one and three a lot of weird things happen in dark crimes foul play shenanigans immorality take place when in dark how much stuff happens out in bright daylight now, there's crimes that happen during the day, obviously. But the point is, Paul says don't live in the darkness because as Christians we're part of the day. So be, be sober. Be ready for the second coming. James 5, 8-9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord is at hand. That day is not going to surprise you. Live as people of the light. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 3, 11-14, talking about the end of the world. Since all these things are to be dissolved, the heavens and the earth, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish or at peace. So James says it, Peter says it, Paul says it, Jesus says it. The whole point is, The second coming is going to happen soon. Be ready for it. Live in the light. Don't live in the dark. Don't live as people giving in to sin. And so what Paul tells us here to do is to cast off works of darkness. Notice what he says there. Verse 12, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off works of darkness okay i don't know what your translation says but that word cast off in the original language if you if you actually study it in the original greek it means to really quickly throw your clothes off take your clothes off and put them away it's like okay so think about the image you're wearing dirty stinky smelly clothes that are sticking to you and when you come home what's the first thing you want to do take them off as fast as you can and throw them in the wash or throw them in the dirty clothes you you want to get them off you those dirty clothes so, all throughout the Bible, there's this imagery of taking off and putting on, like clothing. So, what does Paul here tell us to take off? The works of darkness, just like dirty clothes, stinky clothes, smelly clothes. Take them off as quick as you can, because it's darkness. So, let's look at some other places where it talks about darkness. Ephesians five eleven through fourteen. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, Paul here says what? Cast off works of darkness. In Ephesians 5, he says, Take no part in works of darkness. Okay, what does John say? If you go read like, John the, the, John, the one who wrote the gospel in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, John the Apostle is very fond of using light and darkness. I mean, go, go read all of John's writings. The Jah- they call it the Johannine literature. Go, go read all the, of John's writings and you will see this light versus dark all through it. So in 1st John 1, 5 through 8, what does he say? This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. Okay, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Okay. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The thing about John, he pulls no punches, and he's pretty black and white. John basically says if you say you're a Christian and you're walking in darkness, you're a flat out liar. So, Paul says, cast off like dirty clothes, take off works of darkness. And if you take something off, you don't want to walk around naked. You put stuff on. What does he say here? He says, put on, at the end of verse 12, put on the armor of light. The armor. Literally, that word armor means weapons of war. Put on the weapon, the weapon of light. It's the same wording that Paul uses elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what are you to do? You're to take off the dirty clothes, if you will, of darkness and put on the armor of light. And verse 13, what does he say? Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Okay. Now when he says walk properly that means like, okay, walk in a straight line so you don't fall over. When Paul uses the word walk, it means the totality of your lifestyle. So some translations have the word live. So The totality of our lifestyle is to be that of walking properly, decently, righteously. Are you living a comprehensive lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel? Ephesians 4.1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live a lifestyle worthy of the name of Christ. He says it in Philippians 1.27, almost the same way. Only let your manner of life, your lifestyle, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel okay so take off the dirty works of darkness put on the armor of light in your personal lifestyle constantly be walking properly okay and he says not in these these acts of darkness and we'll get to those in just a moment but it's interesting what jesus says about darkness in john 3 19 through 20 notice what jesus says this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people, look at the word Jesus used there, loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. What do cockroaches do when you turn a light on? Yeah, they scatter because they don't like the light, do they? Cockroaches have have developed an aversion to light. What do they do in the dark? They, they chew on rotten food and carry bacteria and do gross stuff okay so when you turn light on what does a cockroach do? scatters okay so what Jesus is saying here is people that are walking in sin they like being in the dark like a cockroach likes feeding on on bacteria because When you turn the light on, it exposes their sin. So they'd much rather stay in the darkness and not have the light shine on them. And notice Jesus says they love the darkness. Not just they like the darkness, but they love the darkness. And Paul says here, don't walk in darkness. And then he gives some examples here. Okay? First example, and these are in triplicates, two words together. There's three of them. Two words, so there's six words, but there's there's three. Three pairs. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Now hopefully you, you haven't attended an orgy recently and gotten drunk. But anyway, Galatians 5, 19-21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and I like pulses. Things like these. (laughs) Anything else evil you can think of? I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, back in that day, they would have orgies to the god Dionysius or Bacchus. He's the god of wine and of revelry. And sometimes... You, may, you need to understand this. Sometimes for your job, like if you were part of a guild, like you were part of the Pottery Guild or you were a blacksmith guild or whatever, part of your job would be to attend a official orgy and get drunk at the orgy to keep your job because it's just what they did in that culture. So the people he's writing to, and this is in Rome, you guys know about... I mean, think about Rome, people walking around in togas and all the you know weird stuff that happened back then. So it wasn't that uncommon for people to go to orgies and get drunk as part of their job, to keep their job. Yeah, that's a weird job requirement. Uh, I need you to show up on time. I need you to not steal things from your employer. I need you to attend the orgy on Friday night and make sure you get drunk and then show up Monday morning. That, that was part of the lifestyle back then. Um, and so Paul says, don't, don't do that. Uh, 1 Peter 4 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So, so Paul says, that's a work of darkness. And then he kind of focuses more on sexual sin here sexuality, sexual immorality, and sensuality. Okay? So what does Jesus say about this? Mark 7, 21 through 23. This is Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of man, what comes out of our hearts? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Why do you do the sinful things you do? Because it comes from your heart. Unless God has changed that heart. Second okay, Corinthians twelve, twenty one, Paul says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of what? Repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Ephesians four nineteen. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-6, Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord's an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So Paul gives some examples here of works of darkness and particularly sexual out-of-control Lustful behavior. But then, just so he's not picking on the sex issue, notice what he says next. Quarreling and jealousy. Oh, we Christians are good to point out those sex fiends out there that are ungodly. We'll, you know, we'll label all the bad sexual problems. But how often do we address jealousy or quarreling? as a work of darkness. But Paul lists it right here. So 1 Corinthians 3.3 3, For you are still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Do you know that jealousy is demonic? You're like, What? I'll prove it to you. Read the next verse. James 3, 14 through 16. Listen to what James says. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Wow. Jealousy and quarreling is demonic, according to, to James. Okay, so Paul says, the second coming is at hand. Be sober. Be ready. Walk as children of light. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk righteously. Take off the old works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. And then he lists some specific examples. But then notice in verse, fourteen. He says, put on, this time, not the armor of light, but notice what he says very explicitly put on the Lord Jesus. In other words, who's our armor? It's Jesus. He's the light of the world. Now, think about the imagery of putting on Jesus, okay? Now, when you put on clothing, what does clothing do? And it's so second nature, we don't even know it. But when you put on clothing, what does it do? It sticks to you. Does your clothing go with you everywhere you go? Is it very close to you? Do you want to walk out your house without any clothing on? Okay. If you're to put on Jesus, what does that mean? He's close to you. He sticks to you. You take him everywhere you go. You don't want to leave the house without him. He is your source of Strength. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, put off, here's that put off, put on language again, put off your old self, take off those dirty old clothes of yourself, which belong to your former manner of life, who you were before you were saved. It's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This whole imagery of putting off, putting on. Put off the works of the flesh. Put off the sins of darkness. Put on Jesus. Put on the the new self. Carry Jesus around with you everywhere you go. And then notice what he says there in verse 14. At the end of verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh. The word make no provision really comes from the root word to think. What Paul's saying here, if you kind of get down to the original language, is don't spend time mulling or thinking or planning in your mind how you're going to live out your sinful desires. Anybody here ever gone hunting or camping? Pretty much everybody, hopefully. Think about a camping trip. When you get ready to go camping, don't you make provisions to go camping? You don't just show up and like, okay, you show up at the campsite. I don't have a tent. I don't have stakes. I don't have food. You make you go. You, you make a lot of provisions to go camping or hunting, don't you? Because you get ready so that you're okay. In the same way, Paul saying, "Don't make all these plans in your mind, like you would like all these plans and and, and um, plans and preparations. Don't do all the stuff in your mind." to gratify your lust, because Paul knows if you make plans in your mind to carry out the lust, what are you more tempted to do? Carry it out. Okay? You, you can feed your lust by giving in to them. Paul says, don't feed your lusts. Okay? You need to kill it. Kill those lusts. And how do you kill those lusts? You put on Jesus. Okay? So what does it mean to put on Jesus? Well, you You concentrate on Christ. You think about His glory. You think about the cross. You think about the ugliness of sin. You begin to dwell on who Jesus is. You begin to dwell on His love, His power. You let those consume your thoughts until Jesus becomes more glorious and more powerful than what your flesh wants to do in gratifying your passions and lusts. We saw this back in Romans 8.13. Paul said in Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. You got to put it to death, you got to put it off, you got to put on Christ, okay? So Galatians 5:24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 Peter 2:11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The entire Christian life is one of saying no to sin and saying yes to Jesus. It's not enough to just say no. Your heart is is not a vacuum. If you say no to something, if you just say no to something, you've said no, but what's going to happen? Something else is going to fill that heart. So as you say no to sin, you've got to say yes to Jesus. As you put off the darkness, you've got to put on Jesus. So let's just turn to Colossians 3, and I want to show you where Paul teaches this in another place. I've tried to give you guys a comprehensive list of scriptures here to show you that this teaching is all throughout, especially Paul's writings. Okay, so Colossians 3. A few books over. All right, so let's, let's start in verse 1. Actually, let's just start in verse 5. So, okay? Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you okay so is that language put to death kill take off what is earthly in you okay he's going to list some things sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of god is coming in these two you once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away take them off put them to death anger wrath Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off, put on. Your entire Christian life is killing sin, putting off sin, getting rid of it, and then putting on Jesus. Okay, go back to Romans for a moment and I want to tell you a story about Augustine. Some of you may not even know who Augustine is. Back in the 300s and early 400s, uh, Augustine, he's probably the one of the biggest figures in early church history. But if you look at verses 13 and 14, let's read that again. Romans thirteen, thirteen to 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Okay, Augustine, before he was a Christian, was a sex addict. I mean, he accumulated prostitutes. He was enamored by women. He was a lustful man who had a appetite for women. And his mom, Monica, prayed for him to be released from this bondage to women and to get saved. And so when he's in Milan, Italy, Augustine starts to hear good preaching and he kind of wants to study his Bible and so he begins to study his Bible and then one day he goes to this garden and he kneels down under a fig tree and he just starts weeping because he's overcome with conviction. He hates himself. He hates his sin. He knows he's a womanizer. He, he just starts weeping. And then over the fence, he hears either a little boy or a little girl. He says he doesn't know. This is from his book, The Confessions. He heard this little voice, and the voice was chanting over and over again, pick it up and read it pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. He's like, what? Pick it up and read it. So he thought, okay, this must be a sign from God. I need to go back up to my room and pick up my Bible and read it. And so he said, okay, the first verse I open to, that's what God wants me to read. So he opens his Bible and he opened it to this passage right here. This Romans 13, 13 through 14. And so he started reading that. And I'll kind of give you some quotes. He said, I didn't need to read any further, but it was like a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. At that moment, through reading this passage of Scripture, he got saved. He repented of his sins. He believed in Jesus. He was saved by grace from a passage on not having orgies and drunkenness. Okay, he went and told his mother, Monica, what God had done. And of course, she was overjoyed because she'd been praying for him his whole life that God had, would save him, and, and God did. And then he wrote in his, basically the, the confessions is his diary, his prayers. He said, from that moment on, from that moment when I repented and believed and I was converted and read that passage of Scripture, I had no desire to chase after women, and I had no desire to get wrapped up in worldly ambition. That was his moment of salvation. Now, would that be the passage of Scripture you'd use to lead somebody to the Lord? Probably not. Maybe John 3.16. But it's interesting that that passage of Scripture is what God used to work in Augustine's heart, and he became one of the greatest figures in all of church history um, because some little kids were saying, pick it up and read it, and he went up and just randomly opened his Bible and... That's where God had him him read. So it's an interesting story about that particular passage of Scripture, how that impacted and brought about the salvation of one of the greatest figures in in church history, at least in the early church. So. So obey the government. Keep on loving one another without limit. Be ready for the second coming by walking in righteousness and holiness. Put off the deeds of darkness. Put on Jesus Christ. It's a daily Doing this, taking on, taking off, putting on, and clothing yourself with with Christ. And I thought we'd get done early tonight, but actually we have five minutes. It's early like 7.55. Do you guys have questions tonight? All right. Next week we get into another difficult passage. I'll give you a preview for next week. How do Christians deal with secondary matters of conscience that might be gray areas that we can agree to disagree upon that aren't issues of doctrine or dogma, but they're, they're differences of opinion? And how do, we, how do we not judge others and how do we not put stumbling blocks in front of each other when it comes to gray matters, like things that aren't explicitly taught in the Bible? That's what chapters 14 and a little bit of 15 is about. All right. All right. All right, let's pray and see if it's still snowing out there. You guys can go get your kids. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, help us to pray for our leaders. Help us to be good citizens of our, of our country, of our towns, of our state. Lord, help us to keep loving each other in, in very concrete ways. Lord, um, help us to walk in righteousness and holiness and to make no provision for the flesh. Help us to be ready for your second coming. And uh, give us the grace to do this to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.